in mentioning, you know, what we did pre and now, we still want to utilize sentence stems. We still want to utilize um, anchors of support that'll help them start off a sentence. We can still utilize choral reading. We can still have our English learners feel comfortable, even if it's listening to others and repeating what others are saying. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that focuses on topics related to English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. What strategies can we use to help students overcome the significant challenges associated with learning in remote and hybrid learning environments? How can we implement tried and true strategies like sentence stems, anchors of support, choral reading, and others to help strengthen English learners' academic skills, particularly in math classes? How might teachers use newly acquired skills to help strengthen EL instruction as we transition back to school? We discuss these questions and much more with Stephen Mendoza. Stephen teaches 7th grade mathematics at Burnett Middle School in Austin, Texas, where he was selected as Teacher of the Year in 2018. 70% of students at Burnett are English learners, and 95% are economically disadvantaged, which is one of the reasons why Stephen decided to work there. A common theme in Stephen's classroom is, be respectful and do your best. He instills this mantra in his students and points to these traits as necessary to the success of their future endeavors, whether this means going to college, contributing to the workforce, or simply being a valued citizen that sets a positive example for others. Stephen also works with a team of teachers that encourages sharing of ideas and expertise to best serve their students. He is an active participant in his math team's professional learning community, where he helps create lessons that not only teach math concepts, but also seek to inspire student engagement and learning. As you'll hear clearly in the interview, Stephen is passionate about helping his students succeed. He is honest about the challenges he and his colleagues are facing, and he's proactive about putting his students' needs front and center particularly when it comes to underserved students like his English learners. As always, we are committed to keeping you informed and inspired with the resources you need to help support your English learners. If you'd like to learn more about Elevation, contribute to this series, or just touch base, go to elevationeducation.com or feel free to email me directly at steves at elevationeducation.com. And remember that Elevation has two L's. You can also subscribe to Highest Aspirations wherever you listen to podcasts so you know when new episodes are released. As always, thanks for listening, stay safe, and take care of each other. Stephen Mendoza, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Stephen, thank you so much for having me. This is the first time that I've ever done a a podcast like this, so thank you so much. I appreciate it. Well, it was a first time for everyone when I had started uh, doing this three years ago. If you told me I was going to have a podcast and do it for three years and have 130-something episodes, I would have laughed at you. So, uh, But what I like to tell everybody is it's just a conversation, and we're really happy um, to have you here to kind of talk a little bit about um, sort of what's happening in math classes, particularly with English learners. Um, so I, I want to start there by talking a little bit about kind of how you feel like you've adapted as a math teacher with all the changes over the last year, obviously associated with the pandemic, and especially as it pertains to the English learners. I know you serve quite a bit, uh, quite a few English learners. If you could tell us a little bit about, you know, your classes and, and maybe some of the changes that you've had to make. Sure. And, you know, it's interesting, um, the demographic of our school, I'm, I'm in Austin ISD, and there's about 950 students. And of those 950, um, 70% are English learners. So that's a fairly high amount of our students that are 
that fall into that category. And, you know, when I talk to people and, and just talk even to whether it be colleagues or friends, it's interesting when we talk about what did we do pre-COVID or pre-before the virtual learning and now what are we doing? Um, you know, and we, we'll go more into that, but it's interesting that we had, if you want to call it the luxury of breaking students into small groups within the classroom, breaking students physically that we could monitor them, um, overcoming that, you know, where the challenges are just the most basic things, you know, within our population, 95% of this school is economically disadvantaged. So you run across the issues of technology, right? Just some of the most basic things. So allowing those um, students to feel comfortable and at the same time, getting them acclimated into the world of technology, which we're all getting used to. So to answer your question more along the lines of being able to handle it in a virtual world, whether it be in breakout rooms, whether it be showing our anchors of support, instead of being on a classroom wall, we have to embed them in our, in our, in our blend courses, which is our canvas, you know, Austin and I, Steve refers to them as blends. So just workarounds regarding that. Yeah, you know, it's 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 really crazy still to me that that and it, but it makes perfect sense that you'd use the word luxury when you talked about before this all happened. You had the luxury of putting students in small groups, something which, uh, you know, which which we definitely I think took for granted, and something that, you know, frankly, not all teachers were doing very well. But when you have groups uh, like the ones that you mentioned, I think you said seventy uh, percent over seventy percent English learners and ninety percent. Um, economically disadvantaged, you know, you, you, one of the key things that you need to do is get those students talking with one another. Um, and small groups are obviously a, a way to do that, which, which leads me to kind of the academic language piece, because in order for English learners to be successful in math, they need to have that language of math and that academic language in place. Um, aside from the groups, which I'm sure is a big challenge, what have been some of the challenges that you've faced with that, with just getting the students in this remote and sort of hybrid environment, um, up to date with the vocabulary and the language they need to be successful in math. Sure. And in, in, in mentioning, you know, what we did pre and now we still want to utilize sentence stems. We still want to utilize um, anchors of support that'll help them start off a sentence. We can still utilize choral reading. We can still um, have our English learners feel comfortable, even if it's listening to others and repeating what others are saying. Um, the aspect of, you know, English learners learning in a virtual world, in my estimation, is compounded greatly. Again, we talk about the things that you or I or our colleagues take for granted. Think about a time when, when, you, when your internet isn't working at your house or something goes wrong. How frustrating is that as, as an adult? And now magnify that how many times over when it's an English learner, their Wi-Fi's out something's not working, they can't get into Zoom, there's things going on in the house, there's so many distractions. So that's the challenge that we face as, as educators to do that. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that. I mean, it's, it has, all you have to do is think about a time when the internet went out and your just work just stops, you know? For me, it's like, how do you get anything done? Um, and for these students, obviously, with all the distractions you and I were talking before we started about, and let me wait a sec before my wife comes in so my dog doesn't go crazy. I'm an adult. I can handle that. We can talk about it. But for a student who uh, is, is, is learning English and is, is dealing with those challenges, uh, yeah, I'm sure it must be. Uh, well, I know because I have kids of my own, but uh, they're, they're, uh, 
they're in pretty good hands with two educators and they have everything they need in an environment to learn in and they're not learning English. So those, those challenges are compounded. Just something as simple as introducing them how to go into a breakout room. How do we do this? The most simple of instructions for somebody who's acclimated to the language, which is maybe not as simple, and I'm, and I'm including myself in this conversation piece, okay, what do I do? What do I have to do? What button do I have to press? So again, I, I keep using that, you know, magnifying that problem how many times over when there's a language barrier, what are the most basic things to get into that Zoom? What are the most basic things to get into that breakout room and exploring that and explaining that to them, still keeping the continuity of the class going? Yeah. And I mean, and what you're talking about is, is applicable to obviously any class, you know, that's not math specific by any means, but you have to get those classroom routines down and under control. Um, which, which as you're mentioning is, no, is, is, is no small feat, uh, with, with some of the language barriers that are out there and even without them, I mean, it's, you know, to get, to kind of adjust, I think a lot of people are assuming now that those kind of barriers have been overcome when probably that's not the case. It, it's ongoing, right? When I, I, I think everybody would agree and everybody that's listening, it's ongoing. There's always a new set of problems, depending on your student population. I mentioned before, 95% of our students are economically disadvantaged. Some of them, maybe they're in, in another household, maybe they're moving from place to place. So having that change disrupts that. So it, it's an ongoing process and, it, and it, it's what we're dealing with and what we're wanting to overcome to help our, our students yeah, uh, absolutely. And we certainly appreciate it. I know it's, it is not easy and there's a new challenge every day. Um, kind of zooming in a little bit on more of the math uh, piece of this, you know, with so much focus on learning math skills, um, we were talking about this earlier. How are you going about uh, and, and your colleagues that you work with going about making space for you know, class or group discussions that provide real opportunities um, to practice those language skills? I mean, is that something that you're able to do? To what extent is what you're doing now sort of um, adequate based on what we were able to do before this whole thing happened? Well, in the past, and we want to implement that, obviously, uh, online, you know, through a virtual environment is anchors of support, showing students um, visually, showing our English learners um, ways to solve math problems and opening it up on a discussion um, pre-virtual, we could do a turn and talk, Hey, talk with your partner. So they have the confidence, they feel comfortable answering a question without being embarrassed. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll constantly say, going back, you want to create a safe environment for our students. It's okay to make mistakes. I encourage mistakes. This is the time to make mistakes. Um, but getting to the to the virtual world and more specifically math, those anchors of support. What are we using for help that gives them confidence to understand the problems? And when it's asynchronous time, uh, I ready. We, we implement a, a math program in Austin ISD, and I'm sure a lot of different districts might do this. The I ready math programs where they can also learn at their own time bringing back from what they've learned at iReady or things that they're learning, we can open up discussions and making them feel more comfortable. And again, uh, other features, we use the Zoom 
chat features. If they see a student, you know, writing something down, I encourage students to build on that answer. Or how did you get that answer? I, and even if, again, I don't mind if you got the wrong answer. How did you come to get that answer so we can um, overcome maybe misunderstandings or misconceptions on solving a problem? Right. And all that, uh, you know, uh, not only allows for, for going into greater depth with the math, but also into greater depth of the language that they need to use uh, to develop that skill um, as well. I'm curious if, you know, you just mentioned a couple things that you use, including just basic kind of chatting in Zoom and other programs. What can we do or what have you seen be done, if anything, uh, to use technology to make, maybe even make math discussions better than they might be in a class environment. Has that happened? Have you seen any kind of silver linings? You know, the challenge still becomes we, you know, the video, it's like, well, there's only so many videos that I, I'm not, I use them, but I don't want to use them as a go-to, meaning I would rather have open dialogue, but I would also encourage, you know, students to talk with folks as we put in breakout rooms and, and go from there. So the technology the safetyness of being, we can still go a turn and talk in a virtual utilizing breakout rooms. Um, I mentioned earlier, you know, anchors of support, um, using things that we've talked about in the past or that I've used in the past, you know, the seven steps as far as when you visualize something, uh, does a student, as soon as they're ready, can they, can they give me a cue and chat? Give me an R if you're ready something typing in a why, yes, I'm ready to answer questions on that and be free to have an open dialogue and at the same time in a safe environment where they feel comfortable communicating that. Yeah, it's a, that's a great point. So in this, this, you've mentioned this a couple of times and I heard it a lot when we did, we did a look for the helper series, then we did an in this together series where we kind of talked to lots of teachers from lots of different subject areas and administrators about what they were dealing with. And of course, the first things from from March when this all started all the way to now, you know, the first thing that people say is we need to make sure that, that students feel comfortable in their learning environments, um, which you have mentioned now uh, a few times. Do students feel comfortable uh, in their learning environments when it's online? I mean, I'm sure it, it must vary from student to student, of course, but is there, have you been able to establish that uh, as it pertains to learning math in these remote and hybrid environments, or is that still something that is difficult to accomplish? I'll bring it out to the most basic thing and then bring it into math. Um, the challenges that I'm facing in my classroom are, are students sometimes not wanting to even turn on their video. They don't want to, they don't want to, in a Zoom, they don't want to turn it on. I, I don't know what might be going on, you know, I don't want to invade their privacy. So at the same time, I want to make a fine line, a distinction between it's okay to turn on your video, but at the same time, respecting their privacy. So um, I, I don't know if students are necessarily comfortable. And then again, I've said it and I'll continue to say it, magnifying it many times over, just the language barrier, just the understanding, wait a minute, if I give an answer, am I going to be made fun of? If something from my, you know, other students are going to, laugh at what I say or how I say it. Um, so I have to say at this time, it's a work in progress yeah. that we're working on as far as the comfort level of students because, and, and then the math, some of the math skills, our students, um, when we've taken the iReady and the assessment, I teach seventh grade and I, there are students that are on a 
second grade level, a third grade level. So the math skills, um, some of the most basic, what we would call basic, you know, multiplication skills, they haven't mastered yet. So in addition to the numbers, then the assessments that are given to us in the way of word problems and teaching different ways to utilize that. I often talk to the students and uh, as we read a problem, as we work through a problem, we're breaking that sentence down. We're using, you know, different, the acronyms in the education, whether it be rubies, whether it be cubes, how we're underlining things and looking for the important information. So there, it's multifaceted. And to go back to the initial question, uh, there, there's still there's still an uncomfort level just for the fact of the, the process of being on camera, showing what's in their environment, and then being vulnerable to not knowing some math skills. Hi, everyone. I'm Teddy Rice, president and co-founder of Elevation. The Highest Aspirations podcast was created to keep you informed and inspired around the issues that matter most to the students you serve. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you about how we can help strengthen your EL program. Reach out to us anytime at info at elevationeducation.com to set up a time to chat. Now, back to highest aspirations. Yeah, that's just the environment is such a key thing. I mean, like you said, you know, you don't know what's going on, you know, behind the whatever the 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 the, um, the cameras might show and the reasons why students have their cameras off. And I've heard lots of educators talk about how it's frustrating that not everybody has their, their camera on, but they don't really know, you know, what the best way to handle that is. And that's, I think that's, uh, that's something for adults too. I mean, you know, if there's not strict policies in workplaces about having cameras on, that's another thing that people um, are, are uncomfortable. It's just not just like a, uh, a student or a, or a young person or an English learner problem. That's something with that we all kind of, have had to get used to and are adapting to in our own ways. The other thing that you start to get into that I, that I want to sort of transition into is, is the idea of assessment. Um, and you talked about some formal assessments um, and, you know, assessment obviously is critical. And I, I think that there's a lot of sort of missing data in, in assessments um, because students weren't necessarily able to take all of the normal standardized tests that they would, which, maybe a good thing, depending on who you are and what you think about those things. But when you want data to look at, you don't necessarily have it. And so what's happening is that my observation is that teachers are relying a lot on these kind of formative assessments that they're giving their students to kind of figure out where they are. So that, that being said, um, uh, it's a critical piece, that formative assessment. But as you mentioned, their learning and their living circumstances are so different. They're so heterogeneous this year that it can be tricky. So I'm curious if you've um, come across any kind of low stakes, maybe less evaluative ways that you've been able to kind of check in on your English learners to gauge their math learning, even if it's just to kind of see what their confidence level is in these newly learned math skills. At the beginning of the year, so we did have some luck in the sense of being able to get a benchmark of where students were when we took an beginning of year on the iReady. Obviously, that's the, the, the math lessons, and I believe English classes also have that, but we did an iReady beginning of year test. Um, so we could gauge them and, and put some students in groups where they would feel comfortable um, learning from each other. To answer the immediate question about low stakes and the assessments done, just that a teacher that I utilize on a daily basis, just check-ins, 
whether it be through a chat, you know, privately sending me uh, an answer or were they added in that understanding of what's being asked of them in the task. So I would say a low stake would be something on chat because I encourage my students, if they see another student answering that, it's okay to put that answer down if they agree with it. Um, something as simple as we, we do want to get a yes or no. I, and I agree. We want to have communication, but I want to expound on that. I want to expand and make sure that they're understanding some more things so we can keep pushing a little bit more and more to test their understanding of it. And, and the way I do it is at the moment is even through chat. I know we've used, I haven't used it as much. I know some other teachers, whiteboards, individualized whiteboards that they can show their work, mm -hmm. sharing their screen. I like doing that more in, in breakout rooms, but I think a low stakes would be just kind of putting some basic simpler answers on chat just to give them that confidence because we all know that once we get confidence in doing something, we feel better about it. We feel more comfortable. It's okay to take some risk and it's okay to make a mistake. Yeah, that's kind of what I was getting at there and where, where I hoped that you would go because, you know, you, you've already, it's already quite clear to me that you're a teacher who wants to uh, students to kind of get past that comfort level, push their limits, make mistakes, not be worried about making mistakes. But certainly for an English learner, particularly in a, in a, in a math class, I would say, um, they need confidence to be able to do that. And to develop that confidence, you got to have some kind of formative ways to, uh, to develop that, to kind of instill that conf confidence in them. Um, I'm curious about sort of, um, you know, you, you mentioned something earlier, which I thought was interesting and I actually agree. It, it seems like you've kind of, um, you, you've gone away from using videos uh, or, or you're not, or you're not like completely sold on just using videos to kind of teach students things. And, and that seems to be like the way that, that people are doing it now. I mean, flipped classroom has been around for a long time as, a, as a high school Spanish teacher, I use flipped classroom and then harness the, the power of video, but it just seems to be a, a ton of it right now. So I'll, I'll let you respond to that in a second, but, but my, like the follow up to that, if we're kind of not relying on that video crutch all the time, what are some other ways we can kind of prepare English learners for upcoming lessons, knowing that they may not coming in have the language that they need to kind of be successful um, in whatever math lesson is coming up, especially in a situation where maybe that's asynchronous, you know, where you're trying to prepare students asynchronously to get ready for, um, for a lesson. I mean, do we, do we front load uh, academic vocabulary um, do we try to activate background knowledge? I'm using a lot of jargon here because I'm just trying to elicit something from you, but what, what, what's, what's been your approach there? Because that must be top of mind for you. Sure. And I don't want to under, you know, there's nothing wrong with, in, with using a video and there's nothing wrong. And when I say that utilizing it in its right form, play, pause it, discussion type thing. I, I just don't want the, our students just to be watching a five, six minutes, seven minute video without having some discussion stopping it it can be a slog right even five five minutes sounds short but that's a long time oh for my gosh that's a tremendous amount of time think about i just use myself as an example that would be like me listening to russian or or a la i'm just using a language that i have no or limited understanding of it i would zone out so it's important that we um if we're utilizing the video that we are pausing it and making sure that we have an understanding of it. I, 
I really pre-virtual or pre-COVID, I would give warm-ups in my class. You know, we as I greet the students, that would be my time that I would give warm-ups, uh, warm-up exercise, working a problem. I don't have necessarily that luxury and more along the lines of, and, and I use that word again, because we, we do, we've, it was very easy to see a student if they were getting off task or struggling within that asynchronous time, if you want to call it that, when the, when the, we were all in the classroom, there was warm up time. We could have word walls up and we still can do that. We can still do that. Um, the struggle that we have is making sure as my struggle is making sure that I have that information embedded in their blend course so that they can see a word associated perhaps with a picture, a word wall showing, maybe you take a picture of your word wall and you embed that and put that into your blend course so that they have some background knowledge, proportionality. You know, you're talking about similarity and so they can visualize some concepts and there can be some discussions so it's not totally new to them and then you can start gauging um what do you know about this and some probing questions to get dig deeper in what their understanding is yeah i mean i, I just imagine that time that asynchronous time being being tricky because you don't really know sort of what's happening and there's more of it now than there was um little follow-up there. What are, you've mentioned, you've, you've talked a little bit about some of the tools that your district is using, but are there any tools that you would um, sort of highlight that your students are using outside of class um, when maybe there's a limited or more limited time for instruction because of the circumstances that we're in? Sure. Um, earlier I mentioned the, the iReady lessons. I really feel like that's a good idea. We can gauge, and I'm going to touch on a couple of things. So using iReady during asynchronous time allows a student to interact and, and go through math content. And while I say that at the same time, other features um, in a virtual world we can use to monitor students during class time. Asynchronous time would be a GoGuardian. GoGuardian is a system where we can see where students, what they're actually doing. We can prompt them, we can send them messages do you need help with this? How are you doing? It's keeping the student accountable and not just letting them work on their own. Because truthfully, when we put a student out asynchronously, how do you really know what they're doing? How do you know that they're they're really working on what you've, you've asked them to do? Sure, we can come back and we can, hey, what was this? We've had success using, again, it's called GoGuardian. It's a feature that we can monitor during class time what the student is doing on their computer to make sure that they are staying on task. And back to the asynchronous, you know, it, we, the, the program that we're using and we're having, starting to have success with it is, is the iReady. And I'm in no way promoting that program. It's just something that we've been afforded to, to use. And, and it's a program that can be done, you know, virtually you know, online. Right. Yeah. I think some of our listeners will be familiar with that tool as well. I, I have not heard of go guardian, but I will look into that one too, for sure. Um, so, you know, the other piece of this puzzle um, 
And I suppose for someone like you who works with lots of newcomers and and you, you're already probably pre-COVID, we're dealing with a very diverse group of learners in terms of their language skills, their math skills. Um, and so maybe it might be a little harder for you to measure, but I'm wondering if you as a teacher, you know, in math on a day-to-day basis have been able to kind of wrap your head around this idea of learning loss uh, and, and how much it's kind of impacted and affected your, your day-to-day. And I'm going to ask that question because I have a follow-up question after, but let's, let's start there. What, what's your, what's your take on it? Because if you read about, this is like in the news all the time, every day, learning loss, learning loss, and it's particularly in math and it's particularly with marginalized communities. So you're kind of a perfect person to ask this question to. So I'll answer that in a couple of different ways and discuss in a couple of different ways. So I think obviously we all know March, the, the day that stands out to me in our, March the 13th, it was a Friday the 13th and it was just, hey, we're not gonna be able to come to class anymore. And it seems like that spring semester, I would say March, April, May, we were all in a scramble. The whole world was in a scramble, not just in education, every industry that you can think of. So bringing it back into education as educators, our students, that was a a lot of months that didn't get, yes, we were going through things. We were doing our best, but it wasn't as formalized as we wanted to. So there was a lot of loss going on. The second part, how I want to answer that is I want to bring it back to, depending on your population, you know, at Burnett, where I'm at, Burnett Middle School, 95% of our students are economically disadvantaged at what point does a student on a, on a weekly basis, a couple of times a week, are there things going on that are out of the teacher's control, what's going on in the household, or they're not getting to apply what we're showing them, what we're talking about in class, they're not able to practice that. And we know that any, any, learning especially math you know it takes practice you have to you have to learn you have to whether it be think about it when you were younger when you were learning your multiplication tables it was practice it was repetition it was going through it and and finding ways to do that so our our students are in an environment where there's a lot and sometimes quite frankly there's chaos going on and there's not that structured type of time to to learn or there's not that time to study in an environment that's conducive to retaining things. So there is a loss going on. And, and again, I don't, I'm not even sure. Well, I know I don't have the answer to that because there are some things that are out of my control. I right. can just continue to encourage, but th- those are my thoughts on, on the loss of you know, learning. Yeah. I think it's pretty, I, th- I think across the board, people agree that, you know, from March to the end of the school year, that was difficult. And there's certainly bound to be some uh, lack of progress there and perhaps some learning loss as well. Um, you know, and there's a lot of research out there about what happens during the summer, summer slide or whatever you want to call it. Now they're calling this thing, the COVID slide. Um, but you know, it, it seems that nobody really has, a firm grasp on sort of how how profound that impact has been. Um, all we know is that it's there, and it's that we're something. It's something that that people are going to be researching for a long time. Assuming that there is there has been an impact um, for for English learners, you've talked about some tools and strategies that you've used uh, throughout this, you know, 
<laughs> difficult school year. Um, what what do you and maybe this is an unfair question. Feel free to tell me if it is. But what do you what do you wish you had to help mitigate this learning loss and to help um, ensure that English learners in particular had uh, have access to to rigorous math instruction in the future? Is there something that like is just missing that if you had it, it would it would help you sort of get these students on the right path? I think a lot of the resources that we're getting, they're there. It's a matter of getting from the point of having the resources, whether it be computers, laptops that have been given from our district to students. And I'm sure with folks that are listening online, their districts have provided that to their students, even so much so as Wi-Fi being put out in neighborhoods, you know, Wi-Fi put on school buses so that they have Wi-Fi. Um, there are certain things that once the resources are given, we have to keep pushing for that understanding and learning from students, but also recognizing that there are certain things that might be out of our control. We have to be persistent about it. We have to keep finding a way to teach our students and recognizing that some things are gonna be out of our control. Um, I haven't mentioned also learning things, just how do we convey things? How do we convey math concepts to a student? Can we relate to them on practical day-to-day -day applications, going to the store, buying this, using these items? And I know I straight away a little bit from the question, but I, I wanna, I think that's important that, um, that we use, you know, everyday life experiences to try and inform our students on math. But back back to the question of, I truly believe the resources are out there. It's a matter of our students having the structure in some of their lives to do that. Uh, I wish we had the ability to have more, more language uh, getting them more to understand the English language. And, and, and it, think about it. I use the example again. Think about yourself going into another country where you have no concept of the language and you're trying to navigate your way through. Now, magnify it where you're trying to learn math concepts and, and learning it. So, And then magnify it even more when you're not just looking at numbers, but now you're working at word problems. So there's so many different facets of it. I wish I had, I wish we all had the answer. There's no magical way other than to work around and keep doing what we can do. Yeah. But you, you, you know, you hit on two really interesting things and you said you strayed away from the question and I was going to interrupt you and say that I didn't think you were straying away from the question, but I didn't because, you know, you started to talk about connecting with, with everyday experiences, right? That's fair to say, like, how do you connect math with things that they're doing every day, whether it's going to the store, maybe, playing a game that they like to play or whatever the case may be. So that, that being said, and, and then you said, you know, they need some structure in, in their lives, which is, which is kind of difficult for us to do. That's a perfect world, but the other one's not really necessarily perfect world. It sounds like what you're saying is if there were some kind of structured way to allow teachers to connect their student learning with what's happening in their own lives in a way that related to them, um, you know, as teachers we're creative and we can do those things on our own, but if there were something out there that allowed you to do that in kind of a more formal way uh, that also brought in some of the vocabulary and the language and the math skills that they needed, uh, 
and I'm, it's like just kind of pie in the sky stuff here, but I'm, it sounds like that's what you're saying. Like that would be a nice kind of combination of pieces to put together to, to, to help, uh, to help improve the, the outcomes for these students. Well, sure. And, and, you know, connecting with the students, I, you know, whether maybe you have a hobby, folks that are listening, I know, you know, you like to do home projects. If you want to do something around the house, if I went to a, to a home Depot, if I went somewhere to buy something, what, what would I need? How many, how much materials would I need to save? Hey, I don't want to spend extra money. We all have a limited amount of money. I think that if you can appeal and connect with students in a certain way, then you can say, Hey, what if I were doing that project? Think about, you know, I teach seventh graders. I tell them, guys, in a few years, you're going to be driving a car. How much is the gas? How long is it going to take you to get from point A to point B? How much gasoline are you going to have to put in that, in that tank? Anything that you can connect with a student and trying to streamline that gets what you were saying. That would be, you know, the nice thing to continue to do it connecting, which we do. I know we all do but connecting it in a way in the virtual world where we keep that interest. We keep that, that curiosity. We keep that wanting to learn from our students. We get excited and passionate about teaching and, and about math. And some students are, it's a challenge. It's, it's not, you know, maybe they're not a math type person and then compound that with our English learners that struggle with the language. Yeah, or or the or the English learners who uh, just to, to play the other side here, the English learners who are really into math but are having a hard time expressing their knowledge because they don't have the language skills. Right, you're dealing with both. Well, let's look ahead a little bit. Um, you know, as we think about going back to school, maybe on a more permanent basis. Um, kind of two two questions here. Um, wh- what do you hope to continue doing um, that you've learned during this time of virtual learning? Is there something that you've sort of discovered and learned that you, that you, you don't want to just go back to normal and abandon? I've been, I've been forced in a good way to get out of my comfort zone and and teach in, in ways, you know, virtually, I don't consider myself a techie person by any stretch of the imagination. So while the district has provided, you know, great resources in our blend courses, giving a framework to present lessons, we have to customize it, right? We have to tailor it to our students. We have to customize it to our English learners. So I'm hoping when we come back that I can gain that knowledge. It's, it's literally has been on the job training for everybody. How, again, I go back to not just education, but different industries, how we've had to reinvent things in a sense. So I'm hoping that I can use the knowledge that I've gained virtually teaching and apply that. I haven't, a a lot of, again, the folks that may be listening have done the flipped classroom. I haven't done a lot of that. I would like to potentially do that and have, and I feel like I have knowledge that just based on what we've gone through in the last year that would uh, afford me that opportunity to do that. Yeah, but I, I would contend that every teacher does now. That which leads me to the next question: thinking a little broader, thinking about your colleagues, your school, your district, all the teachers and educators there. Do you, do you think? Um, and you know, we can we can we can come back in a year and see what see what really happened. Uh, but I, I want you to speculate a little bit. Do you, do you think that 
there's going to be some trend to kind of take a step back from technology because it's just been so widespread uh, used in such in such a widespread way? Or do you think that people are going to use it um, more because of the experience that they have that they have had? Excuse me. Sure. I think there's no, you know, there's really no substitute. It, this is my my opinion of, of hands-on learning, learning from each other in the classroom, being able to have that personal connection. So I want to I wanna think that and hope that when we're able to get back in full, that, that teachers, you know, they're, they're going to want that personal connection back with their students. And on the other side of it, you know, you could run both sides of the argument. You could say, well, we want to utilize that. We don't want them to lose that. We're, we're coming in as years progress. I mean, think, I mean, just imagine getting more broad on the subject. 30 years ago, where, where were we? And now imagine where we're at now in regards to teaching online computers. Think we're, we're going to be 20 years from now, 30 years from now. So we have to continue to push our understanding of that. So I, I not to be right in the middle, but I really think that me personally, I'm going to, I'm going to utilize the personal hands-on learning within the classroom. And at the same time, being able to have that time that I can assign lessons or give lessons online so that they can present it, their home, do maybe do more of their homework online. Maybe they can show it to me that way, different vehicles to, to accomplish things. It sounds like you have a healthy balance, which I, I hope is the case for everyone. I, don't, I think I think either one of the extremes I just gave is probably not going to yield the best results. We need to kind of take the best of both worlds. And that, as you gave your opinion, is just strictly my own opinion and nothing more. Um, so as we wrap up here, Stephen, I'd like to ask everybody who comes on um, just about uh, if there's a book or other resource that's influenced them either personally or professionally. You can throw out anything you want. I want to give you an opportunity to uh, to contribute to that growing list of uh, books and resources and inspiration? You know, I thought about that question and, and I know just on a professional level, um, just continuing to enrich ourselves with things that we can learn from. I, I know I've gotten some good information from uh, Dr. Fleener, Stephen Fleener. In who, who, by the way, has recommended you to come on. So appreciate oh. he's listening. <laughs> And I'm not, you know, again, it sounds like a, it's an endorsement. It really isn't, but I've gotten some really good um good ideas from the, the books on the seven steps, you know, professionally and how we're, how we're teaching our students. You know, I always, I am such a big proponent for positivity, you know, the right now, as it has been the case in the past, and there's always going to be issues to resolve. There's always going to be problems to, to, to work out. I think associating yourself with positive people, you know, I think a lot of way, whether it be, uh, positive affirmations, you know, your faith, what you have. I, uh, I can truly say, you know, reading, reading even the Bible, things of that nature, just, just to get some affirmation, just to get some clarity on things and perspective why we're doing this. So, you know, both ways, I would say I've associated with my way of professional readings and at the same time, just uh, positive affirmations and staying focused and, and positive. Yeah. Positive affirmations, clarity, and perspective, I think are three things that I can take away from this for sure. Well, uh, Stephen Mendoza, it's been really a pleasure chatting with you. I appreciate you spending some time with us and uh, 
and talking to with us about some of the real challenges that are out there, you know, and we ask you uh, and your colleagues to come on and talk. We're, we're, we're not expecting folks to give all, all the answers, but I think you provided us with some great things to think about. And what we do ask is that folks are transparent and honest about what they're dealing with. And you've done that. And it's quite clear that, uh, that you're doing the best you can for your for your hugely diverse group of students. And I wish you, you and them all the best in the remainder of the school year. Thank you so much, Stephen. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.